0: You're listening to Highlights from the Creative Process interview with John Patrick Shanley, a Tony Award Pulitzer Prize, and Academy Award winning director, screenwriter, and playwright. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Well, you can't get trapped in your head when you're a playwright, or probably any kind of real artist. You have to find your center, which involves your spirit and your emotions and some intellect. You have to subscribe to the idea, the best idea in the room. It doesn't matter who has it. But my job is to have the best idea in the room a lot. Otherwise, I'll be thrown out of the room. You grow up wherever you grow up. And there are things there. And there are other things that are not there. And the things that are not there, you can imagine. And I did a lot of imagining in the Bronx because there was a lot of things that I gravitated towards that just weren't there the fantastic, Thief of Baghdad, magic, beautiful clothes, beautiful places, the exoticism of that. And then at another later point, I thought, I am missing my whole life from my work. I am writing about all these things that are not my life, because I think everything that I actually saw and heard and felt is so ordinary that it's not worth repeating. And I think most of us feel that way. And we're dead wrong. That in fact, those things are gold. Those are the things that we actually have to write about. And you can write about anything. When you start with those things and embrace them, embrace your own life. I was thrown out of kindergarten for making believe I was watching the Mickey Mouse show all day, every day. I could not, they couldn't read, they talk, I didn't hear them. They finally just said, he's too young for school and sent me home and it was the beginning of the creative impulse is that i was powerful daydreamer Phil, you know, I knew Phil for several years. We went on vacation together. He produced a play of mine. Before we did Doubt, we worked in the same theater company together. And he was very committed to excellence. So he could become impatient with anybody who was not committed to excellence. And that could make him a volatile person to deal with. I remember it was a labyrinth theater company. And I was walking up to the building and Phil came bursting out the door. And he was in rehearsal, like Tech Week, with a play by Stephen Athlete Kierges. And he was saying, he looked at me and he said, I'm never going to work with him again. This is a nightmare. We're in Tech Week. I still don't have a second act. Uh, and it's like, he went on for like five minutes. And then, of course, he went back in and they did the show and it was terrific. Because that was Stephen Kierges' process, is he was the biggest procrastinator I've ever seen. But he would come through and I've never seen that. I've never seen somebody put off doing it for so long and then really come up with it. Really the day before it would be a complete disaster. And the strain that put on everybody, all the actors and the director and everything else. And of course, since I wasn't in it, I found it comical. (laughs) because it wasn't my ass that was on the line. But Phil cared. He cared a great deal. And he worked really hard. You know, they're very committed. Like with Viola, Viola was just, I mean, she'd done a decent amount of big work before that, but she was not recognized yet. And she was careful. She certainly wasn't throwing her weight around. She was, I'm the new kid on the block. And I'm just here to work and be serious and do my job. Keep my head down and get out. And pretty much that's what I was doing too, you know, because I got Meryl, I got Phil Hoffman, who I'm friends with, but Phil's not an easy guy to be friends with or was not easy to be friends with. He's a very prickly person, prone to getting pissed off about things that you might not expect. And then Amy was somebody who tried to get along with everybody. And Phil would say, like, you just want everybody to like you. So you're in the middle of that group and... You just, you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're trying to prove something. You have to let them. They're very, very smart people. And they're going to figure out whatever it is that you're doing. They're going to figure out whether you're in any way trying to handle that. And that's not going to go well. And so I didn't do that. (laughs) They're very smart. Meryl is very, very smart and very focused and in a sense, very private her work. She isn't going to talk a great deal about her secrets, the secrets of her character. She's going to carry them with her. Well, I don't know about you, but me, I never know everything. People will say, I've been watching Susie and she's married to that guy, but she keeps going over to that other apartment where that guy Jim lives. It's pretty obvious they're having an affair. And she comes out and her hair's all messed up. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't know and neither do you. And most of the time, we don't know. We're guessing or we're guessing about people's motivations for doing things. Well, he did that because he was jealous. Or he did that because he was greedy. Or he did that because he's a really good guy. And I'm like, yeah, you're guessing, but you don't really know. And so there's always that element of doubt. He's like, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you everything I know, but I don't know everything. And that little area creates a vibration that can run very deep because you can have that about your entire spiritual experience of life, where you go on, I think this, I feel this, or I believe this, but I I don't ultimately really know. And if you are very invested the way Sister Aloysius is, the older nun, in her faith and in her worldview and how she operates, for her to admit that she has death is an earthquake under the whole culture. And it's something that I think The whole culture has experienced.
1: How open are you to saying this is a starting point but you know if you want to tune this in a different way that works for you how do those conversations work? Yeah
0: I wouldn't say you want to do this in a different way that works for you Uh, but I'm listening I'm watching like a in rehearsal like when we did the movie of doubt we had a couple of weeks of rehearsal just you know sitting around a table in a room and during that time if actors have questions if they're not sure what to do with a certain line or a certain action or something, they ask their questions and I give them the best answer that I have. It's very rare that I would be in a situation where I'm doing a project and the star is the center of creativity in terms of writing. I've never been in that situation. I imagine if I was doing a movie that was a comedy with Jim Carrey, I would write certain things that were like uh, lotsis that were comic media bits, and then see what he wanted to do with that, because this is one of his areas of genius. And so you want that, you don't wanna say, no, you're gonna say exactly what I say, and that's it, and you're gonna do it, because he's more than that. It's like Robin Williams, he's, and you have to acknowledge that and allow that to happen. Usually more in the realm of comedy, I've never had an actor improv a line in one of my plays ever. And I have this like one line improv in Moonstruck, and it is very well received, but I didn't like that it was there.
1: You transition from poetry to plays, movies. Do you consider yourself a visual person?
0: Very much so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, if you go back and look at Joe versus the Volcano, I think you can see what I can do visually, which is a lot. I'm a very visual person. When you re- really are a screenwriter, you are visualizing, you're directing the movie when you're writing. You have to.
1: How is it to work with Roger Deacon?
0: Roger is a man of few words, a lot of sparkle. He's got a real twinkle in his eye and a dry sense of humor. It was extremely easy to work with. He's very open. If you suggested a shot, he was off with a crew, like setting it up within seconds, or he was never going to set it up because it was no good as an idea. Most of the time you would run with it. One time I suggested a master on the wrong side of a set and he just said no. And I was like, okay, it's Roger Deakins. I'm going to go with him
1: on this. And the joy for you in writing, is it still more in the theater? I mean, there's different pleasures in film.
0: Well, I hate working in theater and I hate working in film. And whenever I'm doing a movie, I swear from now on, I'm only going to do theater. And whenever I'm working in theater, I swear now on, I'm only going to work in film. And that's kind of how I'm able to withstand the unpleasantness of the reality of tangibly doing something that a writer encounters, you're in your room and you imagine the whole thing and there are no problems. And then when you actually do it, there's all kinds of problems. Actors have the flu, sets fall down, fires break out, floods have had all of those things happen and fights break out. And you just sort of have to deal with everything. And some part of you goes like, I wish I was back in my room imagining all this and it's going so well. You have to go with it. You have to let people in. You have to hear what they have to say, see whether it's valid or not. The great thing about modern filmmaking is virtually everyone you're dealing with is incredibly competent. So you'd be crazy not to listen to their questions, their objections or whatever. From the person who handles the animals you're working with, you say, no, don't go in that pen with the bull. Don't go in. He knows more about the bull than you do and that certainly cameramen and that decorators, they're making a very real contribution and they know what they're doing.
1: And in terms of your directorial style as varying from project to project, what is your directorial style? I
0: remember when I was doing Wild Mountain Time in Ireland, I was doing a scene with Chris Walken and Jamie Dornan, and it was his first day's work, Jamie, and a very dense dialogue scene. And we break it down into pieces. And so we do the first piece. And after he does it, I said, very good. And he said, really? I thought it was absolute shite. And I said, yeah, we're going to do it again. He said, just tell me what you want. And I said, no, no, that's not what we're doing. You're going to turn in a performance and I'm going to make it the best performance it can be. I'm going to shape my work around you. So you've got the power. Use it wisely. The actor, they work very hard before they ever get on set. They're ready to go. They are deeply prepared. And if you skip over what they're offering to say, I want this, you are very often missing the best work that they have. So I start with, let me see what you got, what you want to do. And then if there's a problem with it, I'll say so. If there isn't a problem, I'm not going to create one, but I am going to try to get it to be as good as it could possibly be.
1: So, how do you feel that New York has influenced your imagination?
0: Oh my God, I'm New York to the souls of. To- my feet. And more specifically, the Bronx. I was formed in the Bronx. I lived there till I was 19. Then I went in the Marine Corps. Something that I feel has really been lost when they stopped drafting people is I came up against everybody in the country and mostly poor people of every persuasion from Virginia to DC. And we lived together in an open barracks, like 90 of us, in double-decker bunks for a year. And That is gold. It's irreplaceable, not simply as an artist, but as a citizen of a given country that you come to realize we're all in this together. And you see all of the prejudices play out in a kind of healthily violent way. People just punch each other in the face. Now, apparently, it's much more civilized. Back then, Marines said the most awful things to each other imaginable of a racist nature and of every other kind of nature. And then fists were thrown and somehow the world didn't come to an end. Then everybody calmed down and they went back to their bunks and read their comic books or whatever they were going to do and went to bed and we got up the next day and we worked together. That's a big lesson in how to live with people you don't necessarily agree with. Well, I grew up in an Irish and Italian neighborhood in the Bronx. And in my house, the food was no good. The clothes were no good. The hair was no good. And I would go over to my friend's house, Italian family. They were like openly talking about sex. They were wearing really interesting clothes. The men were like very vain about their hair. The food was much better. And I was like, this is Amazing! I found I've stumbled on everything that was missing from my life in my neighbor's house, and so I kind of fell in love with the Italian American culture, which was a lot of things that Irish American families they don't talk about, and the Italian American families they talked about. And between those two cultures, we covered an enormous amount of ground. So then later, when I was writing Moonstruck, I was also in my 30s, and I was dating, and I was running into women who had this question of, I'm in my 30s now, and I've been holding out for the right guy. Everybody I meet is not the right guy, and I think I'm going to have to compromise and just marry a guy who does the job. And sometimes they would do that. I thought, well, what happens if you do that, and then the next day, the guy you've been waiting for shows up. And that's kind of the premise of Moonshot. And my advice would be like, go with it. To throw over as many pieces of furniture as you need to, to get where you need to get. Women in Manhattan, similar in a different way. I was living in Manhattan, and I was dating women who weren't from the Bronx, who weren't necessarily New Yorkers, or Italian Americans, or Irish Americans. But it's sort of like Shangri-La in that book, Lost Horizon. It described this place that every once in a while, the world is affected by an enormous calamity. And when those times happened, they invented a place in Tibet called Shangri-La, where they kept all world culture safe so that when the calamity was over, they could come out again. And I think that actually is always true, that there are enough people who deeply care about world culture that they go to enormous lengths to preserve it during times when it is undervalued by the world at large. We hope you enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.